Welcome back to Bible time. Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse two, grace unto you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the blessings of your word. We thank you for this grace and this peace that we have from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you'd encourage our hearts and quicken us today by your word in Jesus name. Amen. Now, grace, we looked a great deal at grace the other day. We have a message called grace that we just put up um, a week or so ago. Grace is the unmerited favor from God, unmerited favor from God. That means favor that you do not deserve. Favor means God looking well upon me, and the fact that I didn't earn it means that God has no reason to look upon me, but the reality is that it's a lot worse than that. The reality is that God had every reason to look upon me in my miserable condition of sin and damn me to a devil's hell. The Lord had every reason to um, never smile upon me. The Lord had every reason to give condemnation to me, but instead he gives favor, and that goes even beyond beyond unmerited favor. That definition, unmerited favor, goes back to the days of the Reformation when the um, Catholic Church's doctrine of meritorious salvation was the Christian world standard. As far as most people in the world, most people in the world thought that you got to heaven by earning your way to heaven. I just talked to a man the other day. I asked him, how do you get to heaven? Um, how can you make it to heaven? And the man stood up and from where he was working on a little shelf he was building there. And he said that he's getting to heaven by, first of all, being part of the church. He said that joining the church was part of it. Being baptized was part of it. Doing good works was part of it. And this is that's a very standard doctrine for groups like the Catholic Church and the Mormons, etc. A lot of people out there in the world believe that that's how you get to heaven. Um, a lot of Church of Christ people believe that that's how you get to heaven. You join the church, you get baptized. After all, Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. So you join the church, you get baptized, and then you do good works to make it to heaven. And if you don't do good works, you won't make it to heaven. But that has, that has nothing to do with grace. That is merit. That is earning your way to heaven through meritorious achievement. Grace, by its very definition, is unmerited favor from God. But again, as we looked at earlier, grace goes much deeper than just not earning favor with God. Grace goes into the fact that God, whenever he should have, not only could have, but should have damned me to a devil's hell. God, when he should have been angry with me, chose to look upon me and smile upon me. God, when he should have crushed me, when he should have squashed me, when God would have been right and holy and just to destroy me, instead choose to, cho chose to give me life. That is grace. Grace is God looking down at a dirty, rotten, no good worm of a man who sinned against the almighty and is in rebellion against God. And instead of destroying him, saving him. Some people liken grace to a man looking down in the mud and seeing a little worm crawling around in the mud. And instead of passing by the worm, picking it up and elevating it to a position of sonship. How absurd would that be if you went outside and it was raining and you saw a little earthworm crawling along in the grass and you pulled that worm up out of the dirt and you brought it into your home and made it your son. That would be ridiculous. 
That would be insanity. And it would be insanity for God to do that for man. And we're going to get into this a little bit today by God's grace, because that's the kind of grace that is being taught in our churches today. It's kind of a cheap grace that's being preached in our churches that God just looks down at man wallowing in his sin, man wallowing in his filth, man crawling around in the mud, and he picks him up in the mud with a handful of mud and brings him in the house with the mud and puts the mud in a little jar and puts the jar on the counter and puts the worm in the jar and says, now you're my son, go ahead and wallow in the mud. And that has nothing to do with the grace of God either. That does not accurately reflect the grace of God because God did not leave me in the mud and he did not leave me a worm. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So what God did was to look down at a worm of a man and then God to become a worm himself like man and live a perfect sinless life, God in the flesh in the name of Jesus Christ, and then die on the cross as a worm for the worms. As a man for man, Christ died on the cross. And the Bible says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And this is the grace that the Bible has to offer us. This is the grace of salvation that God gives us in the word of God that Jesus Christ, whenever he could have just crushed us, instead became like us and then became sin for us that the righteousness of God might be ours in Christ. And this is the grace that is imputed to us by God. Not only a favor that is not merited, but a favor given in the face of earned wrath and judgment, a favor given in the, at the place of wrath and judgment, the grace of God is God loving us so much that he became like us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We'll look a little bit about that. John three, um, 17, a little bit later. Excuse me, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Go to Ephesians. As you're going there, I want you to note and remember that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, we have almost these exact same words, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there in the first epistle to the Thessalonican church, this benediction was given, grace unto you and peace. And then here in the second epistle to the Thessalonican church, you have the benediction again, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what's the big deal? That's just God repeating himself. That's just prolix, which is God just wasting words and and putting in filler. No, it's not. God doesn't waste any words. The reality reality here is that this church started with grace and peace and this church is continuing in grace and peace and this church will finish in grace and peace. And for those of you out there that are looking for a fuller gospel than grace and peace, you're not going to find one. This is where it starts and this is where it ends for the believer. This is salvation. This is what God gives. This is the free gift that God gives is grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of aspects to that grace and peace. There's all kinds of applications to that grace and peace. But if you're looking for some kind of ascension into a higher mystical reality, if you're looking for whirly bugs going up and down your spine all the time, if you're looking for some kind of medium through which you can 
communicate with the spirit world and do all kinds of weird stuff. And th- and that's what you're going for. That's not what God's offering. What God is offering you today and what God will offer you tomorrow and what will keep you going through the rest of your life if you're a born again Christian is grace and peace. Grace and peace. That's what gets you going and that's what keeps you going and that's what will be there when you get to the end of your race is grace and peace. Ephesians chapter 2, it says here in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is going to get us over to Romans 5 here in a minute. Notice where it says the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. This grace of God is a gift of God. And you could also rightly apply that, that the faith that you have to believe in God is also a gift of God. Another place in the Bible says that we're saved by faith of Christ. Not only are we saved by faith in Christ, but we're saved by the faith of Christ, by the faith of Christ. He is the word. Faith is trusting the veracity of the one speaking, believing the word. And so we're saved by the faith of Christ that he believed his own word. Yes. You say, how does that work? I don't know, but I believe it. We're saved by grace through faith. And the fact that Jesus Christ came and the Bible says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the suffering of the cross. And I may have mixed that with another verse, but Jesus Christ as a man, as a man believed the father, as a man, he trusted the written word of God. As a man, Jesus Christ read and quoted the scriptures. People say that you can't trust that Bible, but Jesus, his whole ministry was based on the word of God. And Jesus Christ said the scriptures cannot be broken. Faith is nothing more and nothing less than believing the scriptures. Did you know that? Faith, by definition, is trusting the veracity of the one speaking. Placing your faith in someone means that you have chosen to accept what they tell you as true. Now, we do this all the time. When you go to the store and you want to buy some food or the market and you show up there and you want to buy a bag of potatoes and the person says, I'm going to sell you those potatoes for that 10 pound bag for two dollars. Prices have gone up a lot since recently. A lot more than $2 now in America. But he says, I'm going to sell you that bag of potatoes for $2. You take the man at his word. You hand him $2 and you walk out of the market and you never even question whether or not the police are going to come and take you to court for stealing potatoes. The man doesn't call the police. He doesn't say, hey, they stole my potatoes. They underpaid me. They only gave me $2. You don't even worry about it. Why? Because you put faith in him. You put faith in his word that he would sell it for $2. You gave him the $2. You took the potatoes and you left and you didn't even sign a legal waiver. You didn't try and do anything to cover yourself. All you did was take the potatoes and go home with the potatoes. Some of you are saying potatoes. I would have bought chocolate. Even then, if you would have bought chocolate, you say, okay, I'll buy that chocolate for $2 instead of a bag of potatoes. And you say, I'll buy the chocolate for the $2 and you give the man the $2 and you go home and you don't worry about it ever again. You take him at his word that he will do what he said he would do. He said he would sell it. Why don't you go home and sit there and stare at your chocolate and worry about it and worry about the man coming and asking you for another 30 cents. Say, where are you going with this preacher? We'll get there. 
Some of you know where we're going with this. You don't go home and sit there and stare at the chocolate and say, well, I'm going to save this chocolate for a month in case he raises the price. You bought the chocolate. He said, if you give me $2, I give you the chocolate. You gave him $2. He gave you the chocolate. And now what are you going to do with the chocolate? Somebody said, eat it. Only one of you would eat it. How many of you would eat it? Would you eat it? You would eat it. Would you sit there worrying about the man at the cash register? Would you sit there worrying about the police showing up with sirens and lights to take you to jail for eating the chocolate that the man said that you could buy for $2 that you bought? You wouldn't sit there worrying for a minute. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. The Bible says, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And when you're saved, when you're born again by the power of God, when you trust the word of God that you're saved, do you, should you go home and sit there and stare at your Bible and say, well, I know I got saved, but God may raise the price. Oh, I know I got saved, but I don't know if I can live it. Well, I don't know. I got saved. I know I got saved. I know know that God met me there. I know that God dealt with me. I know that the Holy Spirit was convicting me of my sin. I know that I prayed and asked the Lord to save me. And that when I did that, I know that the Holy Spirit of God gave me peace in my heart, grace and peace be unto you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I got peace with God. And when you know, when you really know that you got peace with God, do you then go home and question it and put your salvation on a shelf and stare at it? And you're not going to enjoy it. And you're not going to believe that you really have it. And you're just going to stick it up there on the shelf and, and just sit there trembling, hoping that the police don't show up to take your salvation away because you didn't pay enough for it. Romans chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified is the basis for the grace. How is the grace applied? It's one thing to say that you have grace. But how is the grace applied to you? It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means to have your court record cleared. It means to have the list of bad things that you did written off. Maybe you're a little boy and your mama leaves you with the babysitter and tells the babysitter, if he does naughty things, make marks. Just keep marks and I'll deal with it when I get back. And so you, the mommy goes down the driveway and is as soon as she's gone, you get an overwhelming urge to go and dig in the flower and throw it in the air. And so you start doing it gleefully and joyfully. And all of a sudden, the babysitter comes into a white cloudy room and a little boy covered in white flower who's giggling like a little nut. And she says, that's bad. And she puts a mark against you. And while she's cleaning up the flower, the little boy, maybe you run in the bathroom and you decide that you're going to take a shower. So you turn on the water and you get it nice and hot and you jump in there and you start pouring all the soap down the drain and the bubbles start coming up until they start coming out of the bathroom door. And the babysitter comes running in and she can hear the boy gleefully giggling in the bubbles. And she says, that's bad. And she makes a mark. Yeah, these are childish. These are childish 
examples. I understand that. Maybe some of you out there have done a lot worse than pouring soap down the drain. Maybe you've stolen. Maybe you've killed. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you've broken God's law in some heinous way. But however you want to lay it out, whatever you've done, whatever, as you do your sin, the marks are made against you. The Bible says that God has books in heaven and God is making marks. Now the babysitter makes marks. That's not so scary. And mom coming home to deal with you, if you're a tough little boy, that might not be so scary either. That's how it was for me whenever I was a little boy. Um, my mama, she tried, tried her best to put the fear of God in me, but until God put the fear of God in me, I didn't have any. It wasn't there. And I would rather sin and take the risk of punishment than, than be a good boy. That's how I was wired. And God had to save this dirty, rotten sinner. But when that babysitter makes those marks and then the mother gets home and you have a sheet with marks on it, you're in trouble, right? And you're going to have to pay for the trouble that you caused. And that would be like your rap sheet. That would be your record that's against you. The Bible calls that kind of thing a handwriting of ordinances. Now, when you really, when you start getting older than a little boy, you start to realize the Bible says thou shalt not kill. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you commit adultery with her already in your heart. Jesus said, ye have heard by them of old time thou shalt, that it hath been said by them of old time thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of the judgment and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council and whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. The Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which the Bible says is the second death. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Have you ever told a lie? When you realize you've sinned against God, you've broken God's law, you've got a record in heaven. The heavenly stenographer is up there keeping track of everything that you've ever done. God has books on you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your ideas. He knows the things that you wanted to say that you didn't say when you bit your lip and at least you didn't say it and he wrote down that you didn't say it but he wrote down what you thought about saying and he wrote it down when you did say it too God has everything on record there in heaven what is it to be justified to be justified is have the sheet removed to have the sheet washed away, to have that sheet erased, to have the record of your sins and your transgressions wiped away clean. Now, that only works if you can maintain good behavior after the sheet is made clean, right? So being justified begins with the sheet being made clean. So whenever, whenever the Bible says grace and peace, grace and peace, grace would not come with peace if grace only washed the sheet clean. If grace only gave you a fresh start, turned over a new leaf, gave you a new record, a new name, that would only last for the few minutes it lasted until you sinned again. And then when you sinned again, you'd be in trouble again. And you would need fresh grace, and you would need fresh blood, and you would need a fresh sacrifice. That's not the salvation that God has offered. Here, whenever he says grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God is talking about a grace that goes way beyond just what 
wiping out your past sins and your past record. What God is talking about here is wiping out your record, past, present, and future. We need to get a hold of this today. This is what salvation is. This is what God is talking about whenever he says justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. There's a lie out there that your good works outweigh your bad works. They say if you do enough good deeds, it will offset your bad deeds. And that's not true at all. God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The good deeds that we do are sinful in the sight of God. The Bible says the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to God. So you say, wait a second. I've been up at the church. I prayed and prayed and prayed. I went to confessional. I I took my rosary and I counted my beads and I did my Hail Marys and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God says use not vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they will be heard for their much speaking. He says, don't do it. He says, don't pray that way. It doesn't even please God. God says the prayer of the wicked man is an abomination to God. If you think that praying is going to get you a favor with God, you're actually digging yourself a deeper hole. Did you know that well, people, well, the Muslim's head is tapping on the prayer mat. God is counting sin, 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 sin against the almighty on that man's record. Every time he says a prayer to Allah, every time he does his little thing with Muhammad, every time he bows before the cobstone, God is counting sin, 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 because he's a wicked man and he's trying to pray his way to heaven. And God says the prayer of the wicked man is an abomination to God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Every time the Buddhist spins the prayer wheel and spins the prayer wheel and spins the prayer wheel, God is writing down sin, sin, sin against the almighty. Every time a Catholic's fingers finger that rosary, every time they go through that Hail Mary, Mother of God, and blaspheme the name of Christ. Every time they go through those vain repetitions, God is counting sin, sin, sin. You cannot pray your way to heaven. You cannot do good works to get to heaven. You can never do enough. Instead, God says, faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What does that mean? It means that the faith in God, God counts for righteousness, not the works. But we know that the Bible says that faith that saves works, but works do not produce faith. Faith produces true works. For we are his workmanship, Ephesians goes on to say, created unto good works. There is an element of doing good works in Christianity. Let your uh, light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But those good works must follow the justification. They do not produce justification. If you're trying to work for your justification, you do not have grace and you do not have peace. The Bible says if it is of works, then it is of no more, then it cannot be grace. Look at chapter 4 of Romans. Now to him that worketh, in verse 4, is the reward not reckoned of grace? but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 
His faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Did you hear what he just said? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So there are some people out there who... Instead of having God mark sin, sin, sin every time they sin, instead they have God marking righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. What's the difference? These are they that have come to God as God has prescribed through faith and not through works. They've come to God and believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh who died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God did not demand that you be baptized to be saved. I know you quote Acts 2.38 out of context and ignore everything every other scripture in the Bible to do it, but you must take scripture and rightly divide it and place it in its context with other scriptures. And if you put that in its proper understanding, it is very quick and plain to see that those people already believed whenever he talked about that. And he was telling them to go forward in their faith and proclaim their faith. Now we can, we're just going to move on from there. We're not preaching that right now. You, if you think baptism saves you, if you think works save you, then you are under works and not under grace. Then you have debt reckoned to God and not grace. You see that you say, that's not fair. I've worked so hard to be righteous. I've prayed so long. I've fasted so many days to be righteous. And that other guy over there, he's a, he's a serial killer. And you're telling me that on his deathbed, he can just turn to God in simple faith and believe God and be saved and have eternal life. Yeah, Jesus told it this way. Jesus said that there was a man that went out to hire laborers for his field. And he went out in the morning and he hired laborers and they went out and they worked all day. But partway through the morning, he went out and he found some more laborers and he hired them and they worked part of the day. And then about halfway through the day, about lunchtime, he went out and hired some more and they went out. And then right before quitting time, about an hour before quitting time, the master of the field went out and he found some more men and he hired them and they went into his uh, fields there to labor. And at the end of the day, every one of them received a penny. And the ones that labored all day, they said, wait, this isn't fair. You gave us a penny and you gave those guys a penny and we bore the burden in the heat of the day. And the Lord of the harvest said, is thine eye evil because mine is good? Is it not mine to do with as I see fit? He said, did not I agree with thee for a penny a day? Take that as thine and go thy way. What was he saying? What's the penny there? What's that penny? Eternal life. Cost God next to nothing because God's that big. But for us, it's more than we can even fathom eternal life. And so here are those that bore the burden and heat of the day. They get eternal life. And those that get saved on their deathbed, what do they get? Eternal life for believing the gospel. You say, that's not fair. I've prayed so hard. I've worked so long to be a good Christian. Yeah, you're going to work and pray yourself right to hell because you're so self-righteous and full of pride that you're going to miss God's salvation. God's salvation is by grace through faith. God wants to save you by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And until you repent of your sin and believe the gospel, by the way, when I say repent of your sins to you self-righteous crowd out there, 
there, you hypocrites, you scribes and Pharisees, you vipers, you generation of vipers. How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Whenever I say repent of your sins to the religious crowd, I'm saying repent of your prayers. I'm saying repent of your tithes. I'm saying repent of your masses. I'm saying repent of all the times that you did good deeds to earn merit with God because that is sin in the sight of God. It's not just a waste. It is not just a waste. It is sin to work for your salvation. It is sin to pray for your salvation. It is sin to go to God with your works and try to earn favor with God. It is sin. But what is grace? Grace is when God not only sees you in your sin and doesn't destroy you, but imputes righteousness and favor to you because you simply believe him that he will. And you say, well, how can this be true? How could God do such a thing? Well, it's really, really, really simple. It's called a free gift. It's called a free gift. You say, no, it can't be that easy. Is thine eye evil because God's is good? Is thine eye evil because God's is good? God calls it a free gift. Now, you don't like that. You don't like that because you went to your seminary and you got your big long robes of earthly righteousness and you got your title and you got your degree and you have your little religious system that you're trying to march everybody through because you're in the devil's pyramid scheme and you're trying to work your way up into heaven and get a high roosting spot at the top of the ladder in the old rooster house in heaven. And you're trying to work your way in there so you don't like God's free gift, but I'm telling you, friend, it's a free gift. It's a free gift, and if you want to try and call it anything but a free gift, you're an offender to God. The Bible said that Jesus told the lawyers, woe unto you lawyers. He says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You would not enter into the kingdom yourselves, and those that were going in, you hindered them, and that's what this religious crowd does for people all over the world. Not only will you not go in yourself because you will not let go of your wicked self-righteousness, but you are hindering other people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Woe unto you lawyers. Woe unto you religious crowd. The hottest place in hell is reserved for false prophets. The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who name the name of Jesus Christ and preach another gospel, a false gospel. The Bible says, let him be accursed. Though we or an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than that that ye have received of us, let him be accursed. And then he said it again, back to back. The accursed Catholic Church proclaims anathema on the doctrines of grace through the Council of Trent. The, the accursed Catholic Church proclaims anathema to anything that is godly and anything that is holy about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is the one that will proclaim and has proclaimed anathema on them. If any man preach any other gospel to you than that which ye have received of us, let him be accursed. And there the Apostle Paul places anathema on the Pope. Anathema on the bishops. Anathema on the cardinals. By the Apostle Paul, you say, who are you to do that? I'm nobody. I'm just reading you the Bible. I'm not the one that's doing it. The Apostle Paul did it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and his is going to count. If you want to wait till judgment to see whose anathema is going to stand up, then that's your prerogative. But I believe God, and it's not going to be good for those that have come with another gospel. 
So this salvation by grace through faith is imputed. Righteousness imputed. Remember the rap sheet? The rap sheet where the marks are getting put down for the little boy's bad behavior when he dug in the flower and he made all the bubbles. And then we talked about your rap sheet for lying and stealing and committing adultery and swearing falsely and having a fake religion and self-righteousness and pride against the Almighty. Well, if that rap sheet was just washed in the blood and then it was up to you to keep it clean the rest of your life, that wouldn't be grace because it wouldn't last long and it wouldn't be blessed for anybody because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good. The Bible says no, not one. And we would just be right back in our lost condition. My daddy grew up in a church where they preached that you can be saved, lost, 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 saved, lost. You can get saved one second, get lost the next second with a dirty thought. And my daddy, he was, he was a wicked man and he was only a teenager. And as a little boy, you see, I guess I can't, I didn't fall far from the tree. I told you I'd rather, um, sin for the shot of it than just live the boring life without the shot at it. That's how I was. And my mama couldn't even put the fear of God in me, no matter how hard she tried until God did it. And my daddy was pretty much the same way. Just like that. And my daddy made this statement. He said, I'm going to hell, but at least I know where I'm going. He said, I'm a lot better off than most folks. He said, I'm a lot better off than most folks. At least I know where I'm going. Y'all think you're saved. You all think that you're going to heaven. But he says, most of you ain't going to make it. And at least I know where I'm going. And he didn't say this. And I'm having fun while I'm going there. And that's what he lived. And that's how he lived it. He lived for the devil. He lived for the world. He lived for the flesh. He lived as hard and as fast as he could possibly live in the backwoods of, of northern Arkansas whenever he was growing up until one day a man showed him the Lamb of God. He'd gotten a man's daughter pregnant and that man had the, had the love of Christ in his heart for that wicked boy. And he took that man, that wicked boy to church with him. And then that wicked boy who was a teenager, my daddy asked that, or he was talking to that man and that man asked him, where are you going when you die? He said, hell. And that man said, how would you like to be just as sure today that you're going to heaven as you are right now? You're going to hell. Well, my daddy didn't think that was possible. Because you can get saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. And so he listened. But then he threw a curveball at my granddad to be. And he said, what about all those sacrifices in the Bible? God changed. He used to do sacrifices. Now he didn't. And my granddad preached to my daddy, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That by faith in Jesus Christ, you place your hand on the lamb. The lamb dies in your place, a propitiatory death. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God may be given to us, may be granted to us. And so there the lamb took the sin and the man took the lamb's innocence and he showed my daddy the lamb of God and my daddy saw the lamb of God and my daddy got saved that day. Listen to me today. This is what justification is about. Not only does God wipe away and wash away your sin in the blood of Jesus when you're born again by the power of God, but God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ and that's where the justification comes from it's not only a clearing of your record in heaven but it is an imputation of Christ's record 
It's a swapping of the sheets. Do you hear me today? It's a file swap. So my name gets pulled out of the file cabinet in heaven and all my record of sin gets taken over to a great big file cabinet that says Christ and they pull a drawer open and they thumb through there and they take every one of my sins past, present and future and stick it in the file in Christ. And now it's on Christ. Oh, that can't be true. That is exactly true. That's the gospel. And then they go and they pull a drawer out, a huge drawer, an everlasting drawer, an infinite drawer with no end and no back and no shortage of papers. And they pull out a paper out of there that says eternal, perfect righteousness of Christ. And they take that over to my little file And they thumb out, they find my little file and they open it up and it's empty because I believed in Jesus and he died for my sins and I placed my faith in him and he took all my sin in his file. And, but my file's empty and I'm not going to get to heaven with just an empty file. That gives me the right to cease to exist, but to exist with God, to live with God for all eternity. I need something else. I need righteousness. I need to be justified. I need to be called, not just not guilty. I need to be called righteous by God. And that ain't happening. Because I'm not righteous, but Jesus is. So they take Jesus's righteousness and they put it in my file. And then whenever they pull my file in heaven, they open it up and they say, look at this. Joshua Burke's infinitely righteous. Some of you don't believe that. If you believe that, you'd have grace and peace. Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. He says there in verse 2 that we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. This grace of God. This grace wherein we stand. This is what gives the peace. This is what gives the joy. This is the exchange that took place on the cross of Calvary. This is why Christ died. This is what he did. This is what the gospel is all about. This is how you get peace by the grace wherein you stand, not the works. Now, as you can see there in Romans 5, we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience. You could by extension there in the English language, um, it's shortened. The worketh is dropped, but it is by inference goes on throughout. You could almost say and patience or tribulation worketh patience and patience worketh experience and experience worketh hope and hope maketh not ashamed. So here's all this. It says tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us for when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Did you hear that today? 
Christ didn't die for you while you were halfway to heaven. Christ didn't ask you to climb a ladder as high as you could get to heaven through church membership and baptism and good works and reading your Bible. And then maybe if you got just high enough, you could grab the hem of his garment as he goes by on his white horse and get lifted up to heaven. No, God says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were ungodly, God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, enemies, do you hear me today? See, this is the problem for you if you're one of these religious, self-righteous crowd people. If you're one of these guys out here that thinks you're going to make it to heaven, you don't think you're an enemy of God. And he died for us while we were enemies. And you think you're going to be an ally with God. You think you're going to make it halfway to God and that somehow he's going to save you in the end. And then you say, well, we do. Just like this Mormon lady told me the other day in Walmart. She says, well, we're saved by church membership and baptism in the local church and doing good works and then by the grace and mercy of God. Excuse me, ma'am. If you're not saved only by the grace and mercy of God, you will never be saved. If you think that those other things are going to get you partway to God, you have excluded yourself from the class of people that God came to save. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. (coughs) the preacher said the other night last night or was it yesterday morning the greatest hindrance to your salvation is you coming to grips with the reality that you are a sinner and he that you need a savior that's the greatest hindrance as long as you have any hope of working your way to heaven at all as long as you have any part in the matter you will die lost and burn in the lake of fire it is not until you become exceedingly sinful which is the purpose of the law that you will be saved now that doesn't make any sense to the human mind the human mind thinks that my best efforts worth something at least at least you know God knows I try so my at least I'm doing my best and God will take it from there and God wants us to do our best after all God helps those that help themselves by the way that's not in the Bible famous old saying but it's not in the Bible I'm gonna try my best And God will at least take my best for something. It's got to count for something. No, sir, it doesn't. It counts against you. Sin, sin, sin. Your best efforts to please God, apart from the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary, your best efforts to please God are sin. Every good work that you have ever done to try and earn your way to heaven counts against you at judgment. You say, that's not right. And you would be just like so many people I've talked to. Talk to talk to a man in his yard that says, and when I get to heaven, I've got a few things to say to God. Well, you go on like that and you'll find out you don't even get to speak when you get there. You'll stand there speechless. Be judged, found guilty, condemned, and cast into the lake of fire. So here in Romans 8, what about this peace? This is grace unto you and peace and peace. And the and peace is part of what we really want to focus on here today. And here we are running out of time because grace is such a big subject and such a wonderful subject. It just eats us up. 
<coughs> so the peace, we want to look at this peace. There we're being justified by grace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about continuing in sin that grace may abound. Romans 7 talks about being freed from the law of sin and death, but that even though I'm free from the law of sin, the, the, it's still in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In verse 25 of chapter 7, the apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Lord, help us today. So this here is the battle that comes in the Christian's life who's following God, who's been born again by the power of God. Now there's a new man inside. Now there's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now that holy thing which is born of God cannot commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. He's been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. The Bible says, how are you born again? By the word of God. Not by water, by baptism, by the word of God, which is by faith, believing what God said, placing your trust in what God said, saying, I choose to believe the record, the testimony of almighty God in his word that he will do what he said he would do. And that faith then is imputed, counted to you for righteousness, which is imputed, deposited in your account by God. So here you are now living in a battle because as a born again Christian, that was the slime of the earth that was a sinners, the Bible says, of such were, were you, of such were you, your body, your flesh still has a propensity to sin and there's this battle that is taking place. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. We're going to have to skip through a lot of this here. Romans 8 verse 6 says, for, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So when the peace comes with God judicially, when peace is made positionally and judicially with God in heaven, and you're born again by the power of God, the devil now goes into overtime working to take away the peace that you have gained with God. Pay close attention here today. If you are saved here today and you've been struggling and wondering, am I really saved? I don't really have much peace when the preacher preaches um, on hell. I get worried. This is something to carefully consider here today. The devil wants to steal your peace. The devil wants to take away your peace. This is why the apostle Paul told the church, grace unto you in peace. Because grace is not just for salvation. Grace is for everyday life. Grace is what saves us and grace is how we live. The Bible says the just shall live by faith and faith results in grace. Grace being unmerited favor from God that saves us but then grace also to a Christian to a saved man grace takes on a different uh, definition. Grace takes on a different role because now through the righteousness of Christ and only through the righteousness of Christ, I have merited God's favor because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And so through the blood of Christ and the finished work of Christ on Calvary and the empty tomb, I now merit favor through Christ, not through anything that I can do or ever will do. Even as a Christian, my good works will not please God, but Christ's works do please God. So the 
grace then in the life of a new believer becomes a practical application of the desire and the power to do what is right. The desire and the power that God places in you as a born again Christian to do what is right. And this is why it says there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. Those are the saved who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. If you as a Christian begin to walk after your old flesh, you will not have peace. Your conscience will be condemned, though your spirit can never be condemned, though you're born again, though you're never going to hell, though you're going to go to heaven, no matter what you do. That's a fact. You say, you're preaching lasciviousness. No, I'm preaching the Bible. That doesn't mean God won't kill you if you go do whatever you want to do, because he might. You read Corinthians, read Hebrews chapter, was it 10? It deals with chastening. Go look all these things up. We're not going into that today. No matter what you do as a born again believer, you will not go to hell. If you are born again, you are eternally, eternally saved. Jesus promised eternal life. He did not promise a potential of eternal life. He promised eternal life. That whosoever believeth in me should not perish. He said, they that believe in me shall not taste death. The Bible says we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Passed from death unto life. If you go back to death, then you never passed to life. If God can't keep you, then you're lost anyway and there's no hope. The only salvation in the Bible is an eternal salvation. You say, I don't believe in that once saved, always saved. The Bible teaches that once you're saved, you're always saved if you're once saved. Once you are truly born again by the power of God, we're not talking about fake religious stuff. We're not talking about an empty, shallow profession, but born again, a new creature formed in you. The Bible teaches that that new creature cannot sin. Sinless perfection is in the Bible, just not the way it gets taught by most modern denominations. Sinless perfection is positional in your new man. Your new nature is sinlessly perfect before God. Your old nature is sinfully depraved before God, and that will not be taken care of until the redemption of the body that happens that's mentioned here in Romans chapter 8. But in the meantime, if you walk in the Spirit with the power of the Holy Spirit, obeying the Spirit, walking in the new man, there is no condemnation, and that new man that cannot sin, then there is power, then there is grace, then there is peace with God. On a daily basis, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Verse six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So the carnally minded Christian experiences physical death, whether that's through sickness, whether that's through trauma and heartache and the chastening that God brings in. The carnally minded Christian experiences physical death while their new nature has eternal life. Do you follow that today? But the spiritually minded Christian has life and peace in a body of death. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The apostle said the spiritually minded Christian who's walking in the spirit, walking in the power of the resurrected life of Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The spiritually minded Christian finds life and peace. Don't you want peace? 
You can't work up peace and you can't work for peace. Oh, you can go get your essential oils and do all your little candles and you can sit and you're soaking your little salt bath and you can play your soul music and all that kind of stuff and, and try and get peace. The world has peace. It's fake peace. It only lasts until your money runs out and you have to go back to work. And then you don't have peace again. But God's peace works through tribulation. God's peace works during patience and going through tribulation and gaining experience and hope and through all the battles of the Christian life. Let's look at a couple more verses. We've got to wrap this thing up. Um, so we have the conquest of the flesh, Romans 8, 6, Romans 8, 1 through 6. Really, there's no non um, Therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the, to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Go down to verse 16. Now we have the confidence uh, in the spirit. The conquest of the flesh here through the spirit. We have confidence in the spirit in Romans eight sixteen. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And this brings peace to the heart of the believer. When the Holy Spirit of God witnesses in the heart of the believer that through the faith that they have exercised in Jesus Christ through the faith that they have in Jesus, that they are a child of God and the Holy Spirit of God then witnesses if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with them, that we may be also glorified together. And so this then takes you with peace through suffering. Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It talks about the creature being delivered from the bondage of corruption, all of creation groaneth and travaileth and waiting together until now and not only they but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body and that hope and power of God delivers us in this life from the wretched body of death that we still have with us, but that we do not have to live subject to, but rather are delivered from. And as we walk in the spirit, the Bible says we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Romans eight then gives us so the conquest of the flesh, confidence in the spirit, and then completeness of salvation. We don't have time to do this justice, not even remotely go to Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That promise does not apply to lost people. That applies to the saved. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. When you're walking in the spirit, when you're following Jesus, you can have joy and peace when everything is going wrong because you know that nothing is going wrong in heaven. And that because nothing is going wrong in heaven, nothing is really going wrong on earth, even though it looks like it's going wrong. Because God is in control and God will not let anything happen in your life that is not for his glory and your good simultaneously. See, God doesn't sacrifice your good for his glory. Did you know that today? We all say to the glory of God, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and to praise him forevermore. And we talk about that. But did you know that God's chief end for you is that he loves you and he loves you enough that he died for you and he was buried and he rose again and he wants to bless you. Did you know that God thinks good of you and for you and that God will not do 
anything in your life, Christian, born again believer. Nothing can happen in your life that is not for his glory and for your good. All things work together for good to them that love God. God does not sacrifice the good of his chosen people for his own glory. Contrary to hyper-Calvinistic ideas, God never sacrifices the good of his people for his glory. Both work simultaneously, hand in hand. And knowing that means you can trust God. You say, well, that wasn't good. That thing that happened in my life. No, it was good. And here's where you've got to get a heavenly perspective. God gets to say what's good. God knows what good is. You say, I didn't want that person to die. I didn't want my loved one to get sick. I didn't want that car to break down. I didn't want my house to burn down. I didn't want to become financially bankrupt. I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want any of these things. You're measuring things carnally. That's carnally minded. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Here's where the life and peace comes in. All things work together for good to them that love God. To them that are the called according to his purpose. So if somebody punches you in the face, if you're walking in the spirit and following God and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh and you have communion with God and fellowship with God, you can rest that it was for your good and God's glory. And you can thank God for it. But if you're being carnal and you're living in sin and following the things of this world, then when that bad thing happens, you don't really have peace. And isn't it amazing? I'm so amazed by how much faith carnal Christians can have in their carnality that they can sit there and quote Romans 8, 28, while they live a totally backwards, carnal, rebellious life against the Lord, claim to be saved, and God's chastening them, and it's obvious that God's chasing, the, chastening them, and they'll quote this verse and go on still in their carnality. That's a misuse of the verse. But here in Romans 8, 28, we have completeness of salvation. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That sounds a lot like Romans 5. Back there in verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Much more we shall be saved by his life. So there in verse 31, what of chapter 8, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Look up here today. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord.
Lord. We're not going to get to John chapter 3. <coughs> well, go ahead and turn there. We'll at least read them. John chapter 3 and Luke chapter 2 and verse uh, 14, the angels said that Jesus had come to give peace to men. I hope you've seen, I was intending to preach on that some. I hope you can see that God was not saying that he was going to give peace to men in their sinful condition, but rather that he was making a way for man to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore to have peace with God through that justification. And you can look at that word Savior there in verse 11. Tie it to Isaiah 44 and to Titus. If you want a great personal study, study out the word Savior in the Bible and you will be forever convinced if you have a heart to believe at all of the deity of Jesus Christ through a study of the word Savior alone where Jehovah God in the Old Testament is a Savior, the Savior, the only Savior, and then Titus proclaims God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Savior. The two are part of the three that are one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Throw that in uh, for your own. You can do that on your own if you'd like to. And I'd encourage it if you have any question about the deity of Christ. John chapter 3. And verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and that and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But this, this self-righteous crowd will not come to the light because they do evil all of their religious activities, all their prayers, all their alms, all their tithes, all their giving, all their church attendance, all their church membership, their baptismal certificate, their catechism, all their labors and ministry and missions, all sin in the sight of God. They will not come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved. They do not dare let go of their self-righteousness so they will not come to the light Jesus Christ because he will reprove the very things that they are resting their eternal state on their own righteousness and their own works. It says in verse 21, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Verse 36, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Grace unto you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not say grace unto you and works. He did not say grace unto you and and endurance. He said, grace unto you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True salvation brings true peace. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. So I say to you today, grace unto you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this word in Jesus name. Amen.